The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. My name is Anthony, and I'm the student pastor here at Morgan Hill Bible Church, and it's my pleasure and honor to be speaking to you this morning in this brand new year, 2022. We start our brand new series titled New Today, and this is all about the new and different things that we can have with a life partnered with Jesus. Uh, Today is kind of a special day. It's the first day I'm up here on stage preaching a Sunday morning message. Just uh, last service was my first ever speaking to a room full of adults. And so you are number two. You're my second run. So this, will be, this one will be better, right? Or I can mess this one up. Not sure how that works. Uh, but uh, I know some of you pretty well, and there's a lot of you I don't know. So let me give you a quick rundown of, of Anthony and maybe like a little speed dating profile. Uh, I am 30 years old. I was born and raised in Gilroy, so just down the street. I love that little town. It's wonderful. I am married to an amazing and wonderful woman named Emily. Apart from salvation, she is God's biggest bless, biggest blessing, most grace-filled blessing in my life. I love her dearly. Together, we have a dog named Thea, who is super cute. Uh, she's not very intelligent, but I love her deeply. <laughs> Uh, I'm a huge nerd. I, I love everything. I love video games. I enjoy building and painting plastic models. And I have a weekly D&D game, which for you not nerdy people is Dungeons and Dragons. I absolutely enjoy it. Uh, I like doing anything fun. I'm big into sports. I like football, hockey, and lately I've been getting into volleyball. I'm not very good, but I enjoy it. So it works out. Uh, unlike several other pastors here, I don't have a road bike, so you will not get cycling stories from me. I promise you that. Um, and probably last, but most importantly, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, and he has called me into a life of ministry, and I have a passion for students, for middle school and high school students. And I think that comes from my own life. See, I grew up um, in church from basically diapers. Uh, we were going to Sunday service, so I went to Sunday school and all the way up through grade school, middle school, until about freshman year. In freshman year, I started to walk away from church. I started to walk away from God and faith. And it wasn't because of something big. It wasn't because of some blow up. It was more in a life of mediocrity. Let me explain. When... When I was going to church as a freshman and I was reading my Bible and I was praying and doing all the things a, a good Christian boy should, my life wasn't perfect. My life wasn't amazing. God didn't open every door for me. My life wasn't rainbows and fairies. It, it wasn't. But when I wasn't going to church and I wasn't reading my Bible and I wasn't praying and I was doing things I know I shouldn't have, my life also didn't fall apart. It wasn't catastrophic. So to me as a freshman, it didn't really matter what I did, so I kind of walked away. And this put, me, this put me on a really dark path. This put me, leading up to my senior year of high school was the worst year I ever had, the worst year I've ever had to live through, and I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. See, my senior year of high school, I had, for years, I had put on a mask. I had pretended to be what I thought everyone wanted me to be. And so if you saw me, my senior year of high school, you would have seen a smiling, laughing, happy-go-lucky, goofy kid. But on the inside, 
I was alone. On the inside, I was terrified. On the inside, I was drowning in depression and anxiety and stress and fear. So much so that just about every day I went to high school my senior year, I thought about ending my own life. That's how bad it was. Until a volunteer. Till an amazing woman of God, faithful, servant-hearted volunteer from the church I grew up in reached out to me. It was my senior year. We were, grad- we were just about to graduate, and she invites me to summer camp that year. And she convinces me to go. And this, this volunteer, her name was Sarah. She, she had been with me basically my entire life. She taught Sunday school as, I think, a junior higher in preschool. And then when she was a high schooler and I was in second and third grade, she was also my Sunday school teacher there. And when I was in junior high, she was a camp counselor with me. She is amazing. And it's because of her that she convinced me to go to summer camp. And in July of 2010, I entered into a vital relationship with Jesus and he changed my life. It was at that point I made God a priority. I made church a priority. I made scripture a priority in my life and I've never looked back. So I just want to take a second before we dive into the scripture for today. To anyone who's ever served, volunteered, past, present, or anybody who ever serves in the future, thank you. From the absolute bottom of my heart, I don't think you fully understand just how valuable that time is. Where do you show the love of Jesus when you just love on kids as a volunteer? You change their life. For me, if it wasn't for volunteers like each and every one of you, I wouldn't be a pastor today, I wouldn't be at church today, and I probably honestly wouldn't be alive today. So thank you for all that you do. Today we're looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here we jump partway into an ongoing correspondence, an ongoing conversation between Paul and the Christians in the city of Corinth. Along Paul's ministry ministry journey, he went to the city of Corinth, and there he converted people to to follow Jesus, and they continued talking after Paul moved on. Here in 2 Corinthians, there's an ongoing conversation where these Christians in Corinth are... They're evaluating Paul. Paul, basically, these Christians are doing something that Paul doesn't want them to do. Paul says you should stop this. They say, what authority do you have? What right do you have to tell us what to do and what not to do? And so in the first five chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul is giving his defense. And where we jump in, he's basically wrapping it up. And he starts off by telling them that we do not evaluate each other. We do not regard each other based on the flesh, based on degrees or pedigrees. We base, we evaluate Uh, for other reasons. So let's jump in. We're going to read all the way through, and then we're going to break it down. Starting in verse 16, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we're going to break this up into three parts. Verse 16, verse 17, and then 18 through 21. Verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Paul, in his earlier life, as Saul, went around and persecuted Christians because he believed that Jesus was just purely a man. And then he encountered Jesus and began to think differently. And that's what his entire ministry journey was, is he would go from town to town, city to city, seeking out synagogues, seeking out other Jewish, Jewish people and convincing them that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, that he was the son of God, that he is the Messiah they've always been waiting for. So he's talking to people that who at one point, including himself, regarded Jesus as just a man but now they know differently. So he's saying, we were so wrong about Jesus, we can be wrong about normal humans too. What helps me with these slightly more abstract ideas and thoughts is if I can tie this to a story, if I can put a narrative to this, if I can find a character in the Bible who kind of parallels this story or journey, what Paul's talking about here. And as I got to thinking about it, a name came to mind, a man by the name of Jacob. Jacob is an incredible biblical character with a long story that we just simply don't have the time to go into verse by verse. So what we're going to do today is go through it the APV style, which if you're unfamiliar is the Anthony paraphrased version of his life and story. So hold on, this is going to be fun. So Jacob was born the younger, the younger son of a twin. So it was Jacob, older brother Esau, their father was named Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Abraham is the first chosen person of God. God appeared to him and said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my person. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to promise you this land over here that's going to be yours and your descendants. I'm going to make your descendants like the sand on the seashore. Abraham lives an incredible and amazing life. Abraham has a son named Isaac. God gives Isaac the very same promise, name great, kingdom, promised land. Isaac lives an amazing, incredible life. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. What's unique about Jacob is he was born immediately after Esau, so much so that an important detail about his birth is he was actually grabbing onto the heel of Esau as he was born. That's how he gets the name Jacob because Jacob in Hebrew literally means heel grabber, which is synonymous in Hebrew as deceiver. So Jacob's name is deceiver, is liar, is cheater, is manipulator, is heel grabber. This does not set Jacob up well for a wonderful, amazing life. You see, the first story we get about Jacob is an interaction between him and his older brother, Esau. Esau is a great hunter, skilled, wonderful. So he goes out to hunt, but today he fails. He, he doesn't get anything. So he comes home, home, tired, hungry, dying, as he says. And Jacob's at home. He's more of a cook homebody. He's making some stew. So Esau comes up to him and says, brother, I'm dying. I'm thirsty. Please, can I have some of your soup? Jacob says, okay, but give me your birthright. I will trade you some soup, a bowl of soup for your birthright. Now the birthright in ancient Hebrew culture was a big deal. 
It, among other things, gave you status and power and wealth and the inheritance. The inheritance wasn't broken up evenly when the parents passed away. It was given to the firstborn son. And so Jacob here is manipulating the situation to make a play for his older brother's birthright. He's manipulating the situation for his own personal gain. Now, eventually, they, they had kind of go back and forth a little bit. Eventually, Esau says, fine, I don't care about it. You can have it, and gets a bowl of soup. The second story we're told about Jacob is their father, Isaac, is getting old. He's going blind. He can't see very well. So he calls his eldest son, Esau, and says, hey, go out, get some food, go out, hunt, bring me back some food, cook it up, and then I will give you my spiritual blessing. Esau is jacked about this. He's excited because he lost his physical, tangible birthright. So he's like, I'm going to go do this. So he leaves. Jacob finds out about this. Jacob, being the deceiver, being the manipulator, being the, the cheat that he is, puts on his brother's clothes, cooks up a meal, changes his voice to sound like Esau and deceives his father and gets the spiritual blessing as well. This rightfully so makes Isaac angry, makes Esau angry so much so that Jacob has to flee to a distant relative's house named Laban. At Laban's house, Jacob gets his just desserts and gets lied to and betrayed and manipulated. And then he goes back and forth with Laban of lying and cheating and deceiving. It's an incredible story. But eventually, just like at home, where he ruined all of his relationships, where he burned all his bridges with his family, Jacob again does this here with Laban. He ruins all of his relationships, burns all of his bridges, and has to go back home. If we were to look at Jacob at this point in his life, Jacob is the villain. Jacob is not the good guy here. He's the bad guy. In any movie, he would be the big, bad, evil guy. This is the person that your parents warned you not to associate with. This is the person, parents, that you tell your children not to associate with because he's mean, because he's a jerk, because he will just hurt your children, because he will take everything that they have. He will not treat them nicely. He's a selfish jerk. Jacob has a past. If we were to regard, if we were to evaluate Jacob in this moment, he is not a good person. This is the person the Bible warns us to stay away from. He has a past, just like each and every one of us has a past. We all have stories in our life where we are the villain. There's people in our life who we have wronged in some way, shape, or form, intentionally or otherwise, where we would be the villain in their story. We all have a past. Isn't it great that we have a God who doesn't focus on our past? Isn't it amazing who what Paul says in verse 17 makes us a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I think God cares so much more about our future than he does about our past. Because he views us to the potential that we can be something brand new. See, God formed us together in our mother's womb. He knows our name and he knows how many hairs we have on our head. He knows that the person in our past, which we may have been, is not truly us and we are not truly living into our potential that he has created us to live into. Jumping back into the story, 
of Jacob. He flees from Laban in chapter 31, and in Genesis chapter 32, he is on his way back home, and he learns that his brother is coming to meet him. His brother finds out that he's on his way back home. This is about 20-ish plus years later, and his brother Esau is bringing about 400 men with him. I don't know about you, but if your brother shows up with 400 men or your sibling shows up with 400 people, that's not really to say hi and hang out and let's have a barbecue. They want to take something from you. They want to hurt you. And so this is what goes through Jacob's mind. And so he starts to try and manipulate the, the, the situation again. He starts sending servants and presents and gifts to his brother in hopes to uh, appease him because he still fully believes that Jacob or that Esau wants to hurt him because he stole everything from him. He stole his birthright and his spiritual blessing. And while it's not right, it's understandable that Esau may hold a grudge. The night before Esau gets to him, Jacob has sent, he's at a river and has sent all of his possessions, all of his family across the river. And sometime in the middle of the night, a man comes up and attacks Jacob, they start to wrestle, and for hours, they're wrestling back and forth, and at one point, Jacob gets the upper hand. I imagine he's got this person in a headlock, and then the sun starts to rise. The man says, let me go, for the sun is rising, and Jacob says, no, not until you bless me. You bless me, then I'll let you go, and the man says, that's fair. You got me in a headlock. Okay. What's your name? Jacob says, my, my name is Jacob, and the man says, no. No, it's not. At least, at least not anymore. Like at this point, Jacob kind of lets him out of the headlock and is like, what are you talking about? The man says, that, that may have been your name. You may have been the liar. You may have been the deceiver. You may have been the heel grabber. You may have been this, but that's not who you are. Your name is Israel, which means you have strived against God and men and prevailed. You have wrestled against God. You have wrestled against men. You have struggled in this life, yet you have prevailed. Now, a name change in the Bible is pretty significant. It happens to several other characters in the Bible, and it always denotes something significant. It happened to Abraham, who was Abram, became Abraham. It happened to Simon, the disciple of Jesus, who became Peter. It happened to Paul, from Saul to Paul. And something changes inside of Jacob in that moment. See, for his entire life, whenever anybody referred to him, all he heard was deceiver. Hey, Jacob, come over here. Hey, liar, come over here. Hey, Jacob, can you get that? Hey, manipulator, can you get that? Hey, Jacob, go over there. Hey, heel grabber, go over there. And this point, this is the first time someone ever refers to Jacob as anything other than deceiver. The man then blesses Jacob and walks away. And it's at that moment, something clicks inside of Jacob, now Israel, who says, I just saw God face to face and I didn't die. See, God has a way of knowing who we're supposed to be. Since he created us, he knows, he knows us. And while Jacob may have had a past, he may have lied and cheated and stole and manipulated. That's not who he ultimately was. Jacob believed that, but that's not who God knew him to be or who he was supposed to be. And from that moment forward, Jacob, now Israel, is a new creation. Let's jump back into verse 18 through 21. All of this is from God, the new creation. All this new creation is from God. 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul right here is talking about how we as Christ followers, we as Christians who understand that everyone has a past, who understand that we are now made new because of Jesus, all because of Jesus, that now our job, since Jesus came down, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose three days later, and is now preparing a place in heaven for us, it's now our job on this earth to go around and tell people that story. It's now our job to tell people that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but God fixed the problem and bring people into relationship with Jesus. We are ambassadors for Christ. That is what we do. That's our purpose. I think that purpose is best accomplished when we live out a life of reconciliation. Let me explain. Jump back in, jumping back into the story of Jacob. It's after this encounter with God that the very next day Esau comes with his 400 men. Jacob, now Israel, crosses the river, puts his family behind him, and steps up to meet his oncoming brother. It's at this point in the story that this is the first time Jacob, now Israel, shows honor, shows humility, and shows respect to his brother. He bows seven times. He has a good, pleasant conversation with a brother, and they eventually embrace. Jacob, now Israel, reconciles with his brother. Does Jacob live a perfect life after this? No, of course not. He's still human. He's still flawed. But his life changes. His actions change. The meaning behind his actions change. I fully believe it's after this point that he reconciles fully with his brother. He also reconciles fully with his family because at the death of his father, Isaac, Jacob and Esau are able to bury him amicably. In chapter, I believe it's 35 of Genesis, God once again appears to Jacob and says, hey, in case you didn't catch it the first time, your name has changed. It was Jacob, it's now Israel. And anytime the Bible repeats itself, we should really pay attention to that. It says, you're not Jacob anymore, you're Israel. And then God gives him the promise, the same one he gave to Isaac, the same one he gave to Abraham, that I'm gonna make your name great that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to prompt this promised land that I promised to your father, to your grandfather, I'm promising to you, and your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. See, when we live out a life of reconciliation, we are fully living into our new creation, into our actual purpose. And I think it's most effective to share the gospel story of reconciliation when we have, when we live lives of actual reconciliation. Would you, I mean, I'm not super large, but would you listen to me for dietary and workout advice? Probably not, and that's okay, I don't blame you. But if I gave you workout advice, you'd be like, come on, dude, really? But if you go to a professional trainer, athlete, who has got the abs and the muscles and everything, you'd listen to them, because their life backs up what they say. 
So if we live a life of ruined relationships behind us, if we live a life of burned bridges behind us, that will not effectively communicate the message of reconciliation that we are supposed to be ambassadors for. Jacob has a past, but God saw his future, made him something new, called him by a different name, and called him to a life of reconciliation. We all have a past. We all have people who've hurt us. We all have people who we have hurt. Everyone in this room has done something that they regret that has hurt someone else. Everyone in this room has not done something they probably should have. Everyone in this room has said something they wish they could take back or not said something when they know they should have. We all have a past, and that's okay. We've all let pride or anger or arrogance or whatever get in the way between us and loving people. But we can make things right. Jacob, as many relationships as he broke, Jacob's as many bridges as he burned, was able to come back and reconcile. We are able to reconcile. Maybe it's a mother or a father that we need to go and say, I'm sorry. Maybe it's a son or daughter that we need to go to and say, hey, I'm sorry. I did this, I said this. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a different relative. Maybe it's just a, the neighbor across the street. But you need to go and say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. How can I make things right? Because if I'm being honest, I wouldn't listen to me for workout advice and I don't think I would trust somebody who's giving me a message of reconciliation if they're behind them is nothing but ruined relationships and burned bridges. So I think for us to effectively live into the future that God has, into the new creation God offers us, we need to live a life of reconciliation because that's our purpose. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for entrusting us to this message of reconciliation. I don't know why you used flawed humans, but everything you do is for your glory and your plan and your will, and it's wonderful. So Lord, give us the courage, give us the bravery, give us the, the guidance to seek out those relationships, to seek out those bridges that we've burned. And Lord, help us to reconcile those. Help us to fix those. Help us to put out the fires and build those bridges back, whatever it takes. Because Lord, that's what you did. We've all fallen short. We have all sinned. We ruined the, the original relationship between us and you. Yet you said, I can fix this. And you did. So Lord, whatever relationship, whatever bridge we've burned, Lord, help us to fix it, just like you did. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.